Welcome, everybody, to tonight's public lecture. My name is Marcia Henry, and I'm a member of faculty in the Gender Institute here at LSE. And I am especially pleased to be chairing tonight's lecture on the subject of corporate social responsibility and the eradication of sexual violence in conflict, because I believe that there is no better a person to provide guidance on the means for taking up this task than Ms. Zainab Hawa Bengura the United Nations Special Representative of the Secretary General on Sexual Violence and Conflict. While I am delighted in this regard, I continue to be troubled, troubled by the persistence of multiple forms of gender-based violence in conflict zones. And what troubles me further is that we have often not been able to capitalize on opportunities to challenge such forms of violence through what we share in common as human beings in a global world, for example, by acknowledging the gendered violences that are a feature of peacetime. Ms. Bangura will today challenge us to consider issues of sexual violence in conflict beyond the boundaries of geography and to instead sensitize us to the issues raised by economic circuits, the obligations of corporations, and our own responsibilities in regard to what we consume. Zainab Hawa Bengura has over 20 years of policy, diplomatic, and practical experience in the field of governance, conflict resolution, and reconciliation in Africa. She served most recently as Minister of Health and Sanitation for the Government of Sierra Leone and was previously Minister of Foreign Affairs and International Cooperation, the second woman in Sierra Leone to occupy this position. She was also Chief Advisor and Spokesperson of the President on Bilateral and International Issues. Ms. Bangura has, has been instrumental in developing national programs on affordable health, advocating for the elimination of genital mutilation, managing the country's peacebuilding commission, and contributing to the multilateral and bilateral relations with the international community. And she has deep experience engaging with state and non-state actors on issues relevant to sexual violence, including engaging with rebel groups. Ms. Bangura has on-the-ground experience with peacekeeping operations from within the United Nations mission in Liberia, where she managed the largest civilian component of the mission, promoting capacity building of government institutions and community reconciliation. She is an experienced and results-driven civil society human and women's rights campaigner and democracy activist fighting corruption and impunity, notably as executive director of the National Accountability Group, chair and co-founder of the Movement for Progress Party of Sierra Leone, as well as coordinator and co-founder of the Campaign for Good Governance. Ms. Bangura is a former fellow of the Chartered Inst Insurance Institute of London with diplomas in insurance management from the City University Business School in of London and Nottingham University and she has received her Bachelor of Arts from Furay Bay College, University of Sierra Leone. So today, Ms. Bangura will talk for approximately 35 to 45 minutes, and then I will open the floor for questions. If speakers could identify themselves, that would be most helpful. The title of Ms. Bangura's talk is Harnessing the Power of Corporate Social Responsibility in the Fight to Eradicate Sexual Violence in Conflict. Please join me in welcoming her.
Good evening, and thank you very much for welcoming me here this evening. I wish to thank the London School of Economics for inviting me to speak with you. And I'm extremely happy to see so many engaged and interested students here to learn more about the role of corporate community and you as consumers can play in ending sexual violence in conflicts. This is a time of unprecedented solidarity in the fight against sexual violence in conflict, as you can see from now on to Friday. The call to end this crime is growing within families, communities, and governments. We live in a global village, and we must provide safety for our neighbors if we hope to enjoy prosperity for ourselves. In this deeply interconnected world, we are all and must be partners in the fight to end rape in war. Some of you may already be aware of the issue of sexual violence in conflict, while others, this may be an unfamiliar topic. So I'd like to provide some background information on the work of the United Nations and my office in addressing this war crime. Sexual violence used in war is a cheap and effective weapon that is as destructive as any bomb and as devastating as any bullet. The consequences of rape and other forms of sexual violence often linger long after the conflict has ended. Depression, anxiety disorders, flashback, difficulties in re-establishing intimate relationships, and fear are among the common long-term psychological impacts of this crime. A rape survivor from Bosnia captured the long-lasting consequences best when she said, they have taken my life without killing me. The United Nations Security Council, like the rest of the world, has recognized the devastating impacts of rape used as a weapon of war. And in response, it has adopted a series of resolutions, among them Security Council Resolution 1325 and the follow-up resolution 1820, 1888, 1960, and 2106. Security Council Resolution 1325 provided the foundation for my work. This resolution was passed in 2000, and it calls on states to increase the representation of women in decision-making positions at all levels of society, end impunity for conflict-related sexual violence, and mainstream the gender perspective in all peace negotiations and peace building. The resolution also urges all parties to conflict to take special measures to protect women and girls from gender-based violence, particularly rape and sexual violence. And it asks countries, individual countries, to develop national plans. I'm sure you know that the United Kingdom also has a national plan against conflict-related sexual violence. Resolution 1820 was the first resolution to recognize conflict-related sexual violence as an international peace and security issue that requires a peacekeeping justice and service response. Res resolution 1880 created the infrastructure of my office built upon the preceding resolution 
and ask the Security Council, the Secretary General, to appoint somebody to provide international leadership and advocacy on the issue and requires the Sanction Committee on Security Council to add criteria pertaining to rape and other acts of sexual violence to their deliberation. So this is the reason why now in the Security Council, the Sanction Committee on the DRC looks at and questions if you have committed sexual violence, you can actually be sanctioned in the Central African Republic. So in a lot of countries' resolutions, and sanctions, people are actually sanctioned, travel ban, seizure of assets, to be able to make sure that those who have committed sexual violence actually suffer as well. Resolution 1960 established the element of compliance, which ensures that as a UN, we can monitor, analyze, and report mechanisms to enhance our knowledge of the crime and to be able to make sure action is taken and to list the names of parties who have committed sexual violence. So if you look at the Secretary General's report on an annual basis, you can see an annex that tells you in each of the countries who are the people that are committing sexual violence. For example, in Syria, previous year, we only listed the government of Syria with the military, the police, the intelligence. But this year, for the first time, we listed the opposition parties that they to themselves have committed sexual violence. With these resolutions, Security Council members acknowledge the important role women play in society and how difficult it is to build a durable post-conflict peace if their rights have been violated. The resolutions recognize that around the world, women are the fabric that hold families and communities together. For example, in Africa, where I come from, and which accounts for nearly 70% of today's conflict, Women make up over half of the continent's population, but they represent more than 80% of the informal sector and produce more than 70% of the continent's food. They have supported their families in terms of war and have helped rebuild their countries post-conflict. Ta attacks against women not only ruin lives as women themselves, but it devastates economies, undermine faith in government, and stifle political stability. The passage of Resolution 1325, which was the first re resolution that laid the foundation, and the subsequent resolution that reinforced it, signal a sea change in how the international community treats sexual violence in conflict. No longer is it seen as the inevitable byproduct of war or the unfortunate collateral damage from conflict. It is treated as a human rights violation that should be punished like any other war crime. The United Nations Security Council has developed a global legal framework to tackle this age-old problem, but that is not enough. The challenge for us now is how to translate this resolution into solutions to ensure that we put an end to the scourge. To do this, my office has developed a six-point agenda. This includes one, to end impunity for perpetrators and seek justice to victims. So that whoever commits this crime, wherever they are, we have to go after them. We have to be able to make sure they are prosecuted at the national level, building the rule of law and the judicial system, and if possible, make sure that if they leave their country, we can go after them using the international criminal courts. Two, to protect and empower civilians who face sexual violence in conflict, in particular women and girls who are targeted disproportionately by this crime. There is a stigma of shame 
around this issue. And so women who have suffered from sexual violence continue to be stigmatized by their communities, abandoned, ostracized by family. And this victim need to have a life for themselves. In Bosnia, almost 20 years after the conflict, we have 40 to 50,000 women who were sexually abused during the Bosnian war. Today, we've only been able to have up to 30 prosecutions. So all of the women are still there, and they have children who are born out of rape. Those children have started, they are teenagers. They've started asking who their fathers are. Their mother used to tell them that your father had died in the war. Now the children are saying, who is my father's relation? So there are lots of consequences. So we have to provide medical, psychosocial support and livelihood support for victims, women who have suffered in the conflict, to be able to pick up their pieces of life and to move on with their children. Thought to mobilize international and national political leadership to address this issue. Until we have political will, we will not be able to address. As you can see, the momentum that the, the, the PSVI initiative um, launched by the, secretary, the foreign secretary. You see what it has done, bringing us 159 countries in London today talking about sexual violence with NGOs, with donors, and everybody around the table, and survivors and victims who have gone, who have gone through that. So it's, all, it's important for us to be able to all talk together. Four, to strengthen coordination and ensuring a more coherent response from the UN. The UN is big. We have UNFPA that is dealing with the gender-based violence. They are the lead. We have UNICEF that is working with children. We have UNDP working on the rule of law. We have the peacekeeping mission, all of them. So my job as the chair of the UN Action is bringing all the UN agencies around the table and getting them to be able to work as one. As a result of that, we created what we call the United Nations Action Against Sexual Violence. I chair it, the secretary is in my office. It brings together 13 UN entities around the table and making sure they bring their comparative advantage on the table to be able to collectively address the issue of sexual violence. Five, to increase recognition of rape as a tactic of war. It's not accidental, it's premeditated, it's planned, it's, do, it's done deliberately to humiliate, to degrade uh, 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 women, the, weak, uh, the, the most vulnerable in our community. Because the worst thing you can do to a man is to rape his wife, rape his child, and then what does he do? You've taken the pride out of him. And it's so hurtful that in countries like Syria today, we have experienced what is called honor killing. Men, fathers are killing their daughters and their wives just so that they don't have the stigma of rape because he cannot deal with it among the community. Last and not the least, to emphasize national ownership, leadership and responsibility in the fight to put an end to the surge. It is when the leaders where the crimes are being committed decide to take ownership and drive this process that we can see it different because at that end, that is where the crimes are being committed. The point I would like to focus on tonight is the mobilization of leadership to combat this problem. I spend a great deal of time working with governments to increase awareness of this issue and also to harness the political will to address it. A normative legal framework accomplishes nothing if states do not have the technical capacity and political will to implement laws and resolution. The United Nations and the International Committee can condemn this crime in the Security Council, but it means little if government don't implement it on the ground. There are still countries where rape is not a crime. If you take, for example, the Central African Republic today, there is no justice system. When I say no, I mean zero. There is no courts. 
Zero. And there is no police. They've all been disbanded. So how do you go and meet the governments of the Central African Republic and say you have to try people who are committing sexual violence? When I visited the Central African Republic, there was a refugee camp at the airport. Next to the refugee camp, you have the MISCA, the African Union forces. Next to that, you have the Sangari, the French forces. Inside that camp that is side by side with the French peacekeepers and the African Union peacekeeper, you have women who are being held as sex slave. What do you do? Because the peacekeepers, a humanitarian law, does not allow them to go into the camp because they have guns. In those camps, we have women who are being held by men who have guns, who are sexually abusing them. So much so that even when the High Commissioner for, hum for, for Refugee went there, Antonio Guta, he was not allowed to go into the camp. That's a challenge we have. How do we deal with situations like this? His best option was to dismantle the camp. How do you dismantle the camp when the people are still there? So those are just some of the challenges when you talk about national government. How can we support them and work with them? But increasingly, we have come to realize that governments are not the only organization that have an important role to play in ending this human rights abuse. Through research and reporting, we're coming to understand the role that transnational and international cooperation, especially those involved in the extraction of minerals, can play in the eradication of sexual violence. As I said, Resolution 1960 created the element of compliance, which is monitor, analyze, report on where sexual violence is taking place, how is it taking place, who is committing the sexual violence. Through that, those information and research, we have come to understand more about the phenomenon of sexual violence, where it is being committed, how it is being committed, who is responsible. So it has given us a lot of opportunity to look deeper into the issue, to see what else can we do, and what work more further work we can be able to do in terms of solving the issue of sexual violence. We may feel walls away from the village as individuals sitting in all communities where rape and violence have become commonplace. But the presence of conflict minerals in many of our everyday products link us inextricably to the proliferation of violence in other countries. We own smartphones. We have tablets. We have laptops. The products that you use every day for your education to conduct business or for entertainment contains minerals that drives conflict and fuels war half a world away from you, which you will never realize. Conflict minerals can take many forms, but for the purpose of our discussion, we will focus on four of the most conf common conflict minerals in the global marketplace. Gold, tungsten, tatalum, and tin. In conflicts around the world, the sales of these minerals finance violence, and the profits are used to bribe officials, buy weapons, pay soldiers, and attract new recruits. Conflict minerals are the lifeblood of many war efforts, and armed groups are willing to use absolute brutality to secure their supply. Combatants, which are armed groups, instill fear in local population to drive them away from mineral-rich land by waging a war of terror throughout the region, systematically raping men, women, boys, and girls. 
Once they know that this area has minerals and they want to take up the minerals and there is no government presence, no authority there, the best option they do is to try to attack the village, rape the women, to be able to make sure that people can run away. Because once they run away, they have control of the land and then they can mine the minerals as, as much as they can. These assaults do more damage an individual. They affect, they do not do more than damage to an individual. They affect an entire community. By forcing people to flee their homes and villages, the systematic widespread use of rape breaks up families and tears the fabric of society. The scattered, the scattered terrified population are easier to control. And because sexual violence targets society's most vulnerable, it contributes to enduring poverty and insecurity. In these environments, the war wages on fueling and the demand for conflict minerals and contributing to more cases of sexual violence. The unregulated market for conflict minerals drives a vicious circle of attack and counter-attack, and rape becomes an inherent part of the supply chain for many products we take for granted. When you speak to a rape survivor, as I've always done, and as I continue to do, and listen to their story, as I have countless times, the pain of every woman is tangible. Sometimes they come to me and they cannot speak. Like when I went to visit Dadaab, which is the biggest refugee camp in the world, which has about half a million people there, all sometimes you do, and as in Somalia, there are 503 camps. All you do sometimes is just sit with this woman and cry, because all they have wanted is for somebody to listen to them, somebody to appreciate and understand their story, to know that they are suffering, because they don't have anybody to listen to them. And so sometimes all you do in the circumstances is sit down, hold their hand, and they talk, they cry, you cry with them. So for them, they, have, they are happy because somebody is actually listening to them. Somebody understands and appreciates what they have gone through as women. And I can tell you, it doesn't matter where she comes from, whether it's Colombia, whether it's Bosnia, whether it's Syria, whether it's the DRC, or whether it's the woman who's been raped in the square, Tahir Square in Egypt. The pain is the same. The humiliation is the same. The trauma they go through is the same. It has no, no region or continent has a monopoly on it. All the women feel the same pain. And families suffer at the horror of what has been done. And communities are left shaken to the core. No matter what country you come from, the pain is the same. A woman I met in Bosnia said to me, I spoke to her about what can we do for the future. She said, you asking me about the future? How can you ask me about the future when the past is still with me? I can't let it go. Because she walks in the streets of Bosnia, she sees the rapist. She goes into a bus, she sees him, he taunts her. He's in the military, he's in the police, he's a government minister. So how can you tell that woman to forget? And the rapist makes sure he reminds her that he raped her. And if she says anything else, he will rape her again. And that's very difficult. I mean, there was a woman who was raped by five men. She got pregnant. She had a baby. Every time she looks at the baby, she saw the five men raping her, and she tries to strangle the baby. What do you do with a woman like that? And they told me of a story in Croatia where a woman had a baby during, during the war when she was raped. She had a son before that. 
And so along the line, the rumors started going around the village. This boy, was the, the first child was now a teenager, adult enough. And somebody whispered to his dad, that's actually your younger brother, because nobody was ever able to tell him who is the father. And they told him that he was born out of rape. So he went home and asked his mother, is this true? The mother said, what is it? He said, I want to know. He said, what do you want to know? Is it true that my brother was born out of rape? The mother said, no. And the son said, thank God, or I will have killed him. It tells you how he cannot stand up to be able to accept it, that his son, his brother was born out of rape. I mean, in Syria today, men are tied while their wives are being raped in public. How do you expect that man to ever accept that woman? Or I met a man in Bosnia who was raped during the Bosnian war. He was forced to rape his son. He lost contact. He lost his son. The, the two people could not face each other anymore because the shame was just too much. So that's why we say when you rape a woman or you rape a person, it's not only you're raping an individual, you're destroying a family, you're destroying a community because people just can't deal with it. With regards to the issue of the, 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 the talk, we're talking about the issue of minerals. The numbers alone speak to the gravity of the problem, the relation of conflict and its relation with sexual violence. In 2013, the Enough Project for Africa estimated that armed rebels generated almost $1 billion from minerals extracted and stolen from mines in non-conflict zone in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Because two-thirds of the country is not under the control of the government. The Eastern DRC, where you have all the minerals, is actually in rebel hands. So most of the minerals are extracted illegally. They are siphoned into neighboring countries, and then they are sold out. So the government loses the revenue of the communities. Where do these minerals end up? If we open any consumer electric device, we will find tin on circuit boards. Minerals from the DRC account for 2.3% of the global production of tin. And Congolese armed groups earn approximately 85 million a year from the trade in tin. Tatalon is used in iPod, digital cameras, and cell phones to keep the devices charged. More than 8% of the world's Tatalon comes from the DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. And Congolese armed men earn an estimated $8 million per year from the trade of this mineral. Tungsten is what makes your phone vibrate when you receive a call or message. Armed groups on the DRC reap about $2 million annually from tungsten. The most lucrative of these big four minerals for armed groups is gold. Gold is used to conduct electricity because of its resistance to corrosion and its lack of toxicity. 11,000 pounds of gold are mined in Eastern Congo each year. And armed groups and their business partners reap between 85 and 90% of the profit. Somewhere between $44 million and $88 million per year. The massive qualities of these conflict minerals become an integral part of the global supply chain. After being sold by armed groups, the minerals travel through smelters, refiners, brokers, and commodity exchange before they ever end up in a component or subcomponent of a product. 
These supply chains are vast, and some companies are five to seven layers removed from the direct purchase of these minerals. For too long, these complex supply chains and the stigma surrounding rape obscure this issue. The link between conflict minerals and sexual violence remains shrouded in secrecy. Historically, rape was treated as a second-class crime that happened to second-class people. Perpetrators walked free in a culture of impunity while their victims suffered stigma and social exclusion. Leaders in the public and private sector washed their hands of the issue, claiming that rape was an unfortunate but inevitable coincidences of war. But rape in this content is not an accident. It is a weapon of war wielded with deadly accuracy to secure valuable resources. Today, we are shining a light on the relationship between sexual violence and conflict minerals. The supply chain may be complex, but the link between sexual violence and conflict minerals could not be clearer. The private sector is joining civil society and lawmakers to demand an end to the use of minerals extracted using methods condemned by the international community. We are beginning to speak with one resounding voice. We are telling perpetrators that they cannot escape punishment for this terrible crime. We are telling survivors that we hear their voices and we are ready to commit their, to their protection in every way that we can. The private sector and consumers have the power to eliminate conflict minerals from our supply chains and help bring peace to communities destroyed by warfare. When we have the power to end the suffering of other human beings, we have a moral duty to exercise it. Some communities, some companies fear they will no longer be profitable if they commit to protecting human rights. But economic imperative should not eclipse our moral obligation to justice. It has also been demonstrated that ethical companies can be profitable companies. The electronic industry offers excellent evidence to this end. Industry leaders in the consumer electronics sector have been pioneers in the corporate fight against sexual violence. Companies that pledge to protect human rights through ethically sourced supply chains are among the most competitive and profitable in the sector. Intel COE Brian broke new ground this year when he promised that all Intel microprocessors will henceforth be conflict-free. In February, Apple announced that all of its active tatalum smelters are verified as conflict-free. Apple also became the first company to publicly publish a list of the smelters and refiners in its supply chain. The Electronic Industry Citizenship Coalition developed a new plan to confront unwielding supply chains with a two-step process. The coalition identified a point in the supply chain where smelters and refiners link small mining operations to the global electronic markets. The transformation of minerals into metals by smelters is important because it is the last stage where information is known about the origins of the minerals. Advanced micro devices successfully use this method to identify more than 180 smelters and refiners in its supply chain. The innovative forward-looking steps taken by these companies 
offers an excellent model to follow. It is no accident that they are also among the top players in their sector because their commitment to human rights add values to their brands. So today we have a lot of companies who are making research. So when companies want to invest in African countries or they want to go and source minerals, they actually consult those companies. And they ask this company, give me a due human rights diligence. Tell me what are the human rights violations in a country. What can I do to be able to make sure? So examples have been set, and I think that's what we should encourage more companies to do so that companies do not go and source minerals just because of economic reasons from countries where women have been sexually abused and this mini women's body have been used at battlefields and the minerals are brought. Companies that choose to ignore how they, they source their raw materials do so at their own peril. They run the risk of consumers associating their brand with sexual violence and other human rights violations. Protest, boycott, and negative brand perception are becoming increasingly common as more people become aware of how what they buy at home affects people who live abroad. A survey by PricewaterhouseCoopers found that most executives are predicting revenue impact in consequences if their products are linked to conflict minerals in the future. 19% of companies believe that conflict minerals reporting is something demanded by consumers and stakeholders. PricewaterhouseCoopers expect that stakeholders will become even more demanding in the future, requiring greater transparency and pushing more companies to implement conflict-free supply chain. Profitable corporations want to protect their brands, and they want to be accountable to their consumers as well as to the countries in which they operate. Leading companies want to practice good corporate citizenship because it increases the overall value of their business. Consumers will reward companies working to develop ethical supply chains, and they will punish those that continue to ignore the impact of conflict minerals. Corporations ignoring the issue of conflict minerals also face mounting financial and legal burden. Public and political leaders around the world are now calling for the elimination of conflict minerals with increasing vigor. The Organization for the Economic Development, Cooperation and Development produced the due diligence guidance for responsible supply chains of minerals from conflict-affected and high-risk areas. This international framework helps companies make purchasing decisions that do not intensify or perpetuate conflicts. In the United States, the 2010 Frank Wall Street Reform Act included Provision 1502 on conflict minerals. The provision requires all companies listed on the United States Stock Exchange to conduct due diligence and report on the sourcing of their gold, tatalum, tungsten, and tin. Companies are required to investigate whether they source minerals from non-conflict zones, and they must produce public reports on their findings. Provision 1502 affects approximately 6,000 companies around the world. The United States Securities and Exchange Commission unequivocally rejected demands for business groups that act to be excluded from the requirements. You obviously can expect that. U.S. lawmakers, the public and industry leaders, could not be clearer on where they stand. They want to see industries clean up their supply chains and protect human rights. 
They are watching the issue closely and they are calling on regulators to be tough and firm in the implementation of those reporting requirements. No matter the regulatory environment, leading corporations continue to be ahead of the curve in conflict mineral reporting. Even today at the summit this afternoon, I chaired a meeting on conflict uh, conflict-related minerals. We had a, a representative from the United States Deputy United States Department, the Deputy Secretary of State. We had somebody from Japan, and we had the student citizenship because they have a global campaign around the world in the United States and the UK, in which they campaign against conflict minerals and its relationship to sexual violence. So we had those people who came to do presentation, as well as from Harvard University. They are doing a lot of research in this area. The European Union also published draft regulation that will complement the Dodd-Frank 1502 provisions. The new rules will require European Union importers of tin, tatalum, tungsten, and gold to exercise due diligence in the sourcing of these minerals. The EU regulation is a voluntary self-certification program, but the European Commission reported that many companies are already in implementing compliance programs following pressure from companies on the United States Stock Exchange and the public. It is estimated that 150,000 to 200,000 European Union companies are involved in the supply chains of the 6,000 companies affected by the Dodd-Frank mineral reporting requirements. If all goes as planned, the European law will be approved in September and will take effect in 2015. The European Commission's assessments note that some risk-averse companies may withdraw from known conflict regions such as the DRC and source minerals elsewhere rather than risk non-compliance with the new regulation. However, this does not break the link between sexual violence and armed groups, and it may cause unforeseen damages. For example, 12.5 million Congolese, or about 17% of the DRC population, are economically dependent on mining. A sudden dramatic change in the local economy could have unintended socioeconomic consequences in an already volatile area. This may even trigger more bloodshed as illicit mining activities are driven deeper on the ground instead of legitimizing them. The solution is not to completely disengage from sourcing activities in countries like the DRC. We need to source minerals in a way that does not violate human rights in these regions while still supporting the local economy. I do not wish to present this as a purely combative landscape that sets cooperation against the public and lawmakers. It is not simply a situation where corporations are always on the defense. Once corporations realize their connection to conflict minerals, they typically take steps to protect their brands by respecting human rights. This is the reason why we're trying to work with university and students to be able to raise their awareness so we can use them as a pressure group to get, to get corporations to understand that this is what they need to do. This is why awareness raising campaigns are so crucial. Many corporations such as Intel and Apple are leading from the front, showing the world that humane policies are both possible and profitable. If the public and private sector unite to eliminate these minerals from supply chains, there is a more prosperous future in store for all of us. We truly live in a global village. You cannot experience meaningful growth 
while your neighbor is suffering. I mean, those of you who live in the UK, you see the number of refugees, people trying to run away from their countries. How many of them are dying on boats? And I, I will tell you two examples that was given to me. I went to visit Italy. The, the president of the Council of Chambers is a woman. She said she wanted to see me. So I thought, a little bit strange, why is she making the request? So I agreed, I went to see her, and she said, I have a problem. She said, you know, all of those people come in as refugees to Italy. I went to visit them. And one of the, some of the stories that told me, I just couldn't believe, and I thought I needed to ask for your advice what to do. She said, some of these women who are running away from their country, of course, having been raped in some of this country, they come through the desert in Libya. They are arrested by the armed groups. You know, they're all over in Libya. These women are raped continuously while in prison. They are forced to call their families. Imagine you're running from poverty and from war. You are now forced to call your family to pay your capture in Libya. So their families need to send money by Western Union. If their families don't send money, these women are auctioned. Every month, they have farmers coming from different parts of Libya to actually buy these women. So these women are captured, sold into slave to farmers to go and work in the farms. So most of the women who come on the boat in Libya, these are the ones who can afford, who have paid for themselves, who are coming. And when they come, they have HIV, they have easy, they have everything because they have been in police stations being raped. On that same trip when I left Italy, I went to Japan for a week and I, ended up, I went to Luxembourg. The Grand Duchess, who is like the queen, asked she wants to have a meeting with me. So I said... Okay. So I went to see her. She said, you know, I have a problem. I work with an organization led by a woman from Eritrea. We work with Eritrean women refugees who are escaping through the Sinai deserts. And these women are captured by Bedouin, and they are raped continuously, and they are forced to sell their family for money. If the family don't give them money, they are either locked in prison, or their drugs and their organs are taken from them. So that tell you the chain, the complexity, the challenges of this problem. This is why I say you cannot experience, because once these people run away from their country, we have all this problem. We never stop funding them. We have challenges to live with them. And so it's, it's, the, because the world is a global village, every woman raped in one country is something that affects a woman in another country. So the revenue from the consumer electronic is projected to grow 2.4% in 2014, reaching a new record height of $208 billion. This enormous profit is completely inequitable, with the lion's share of the products being consumed in countries that are not directly experiencing conflict. The first time I visited CAR, this is a country in conflict. The rebels were like 40 miles from the city. The hotel I was staying was full of everybody, from Japanese, from Chinese, from French, American. Where are they coming? They have private planes that go straight to the north to buy the diamonds, to buy everything. I left that country. The French parachuters were jumping down. And I went there in March this year. You still have these people there. They come in, they take the diamonds, they chatter planes, they go to the north, they buy the diamonds from the rebel, and they fly out. Because there is no government where they are buying the diamonds. There is no government presence. So they have a field day. They buy it at cutthroat price. They are able to sell it. So when we talk about the, the, the revenue that is generated, 
It's a, a big, big market. So any country where there is no government, it's a free for all. So the international criminal syndicate, the global criminal syndicate, goes into that country and rip off everything that they can get from the country. Developed markets such as the European Union and the United States are the primary markets for these goods that you get away from CAR, Central African Republic, you get away from the DRC and other countries. The European Union accounts for almost 35% of the global mineral trade, while the United States leads the global tech market with an estimated 40% share of global technology purchases. The division of profits within the conflict zone also rewards only a small core of elites. For example, armed groups and their affiliated business partners claim 85 to 90% of the profit from the gold trade because there's no government presence, so nobody gets the money. Local people who suffer from sexual violence, forced labor, and horrible mining conditions earn just 1 to 3%. Conflict minerals do the most damage to the most vulnerable, impoverished people in society. We cannot begin to fathom the money lost from the global economy each year due to the devastating physical and psychological effects of sexual violence. The healthcare costs alone are staggering. HIV and other sexually transmitted infectious unwanted pregnancies, physical disability and the spread of multi-drug resistant infections represent just a few of the inculcable costs that individuals and society must bear as a result of this crime. There are productivity costs for survivors who face such severe shame and stigma that they cannot participate in their local economies. Psychological trauma and suicide permanently remove from the labor force and leave deep scars on their family members. The country experiences an enduring education deficit because children cannot attend school. In the CIA, there's no school now. People can't go to school. All the buildings have been burned because most of the refugees run into hospitals, into school facilities, and the rebels burn them in trying to run after the people. Sexual violence also perpetuates conflict long after hostilities have ended by contributing for, to a cycle of um, retribution. Because when you rape a woman, a man, you rape a woman in front of his husband, he will never forgive you. And you force him to kill his daughter and his wife because he's so ashamed to face his community and his family. You think that man will forgive you? It's not possible. It impedes national reconciliation. That's why we have a circle of conflict over and over. And peace building, making resurgent in violent conflicts more likely. These assaults in the economic development long after the guns have fallen silent. And the peace agreements have been signed because there can be no economic and social development if safety and security is undermined. If we can protect people from sexual violence, we can improve social stability and encourage market stability overall. Empowering survivors and helping them to reintegrate into their communities will foster economic self-sufficiency and growth. I'm just coming from Downing Street, and we had audience with the Prime Minister, and we said to them, the weakest link in all of this is the services to the survivor. But the worst thing I have seen is the inability of the whole world to provide economic livelihood support for victims of sexual violence. Because women are thrown out by their husbands. Children are abandoned. I met a woman in the DRC who had five children. She was raped and she became pregnant. So she had a sixth baby. She was thrown out of the home because the sisters, the family of the husband said to her, we're not even too sure the five children are for our brother. 
So you go out with your six children. So what do you expect that woman to do? And it's, so it is important for us to be able to provide economic livelihood support for victims of sexual violence to reintegrate them into society. This will free up the resources of donors to concentrate on other immediate needs. Protecting civilians from sexual violence will advance the creation of healthy climate for foreign investment and trade. It opens the door to new markets and contributes to sustainable peace. We need to open our eyes and truly see the people who suffer because of illicit mining. We need to stop seeing countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo as just places to extract resources, or as one-dimensional country destined to be trapped in a spiral of conflict. Similarly, rape survivors are not simply charity cases. They are not the collateral damage of war. These women, men, boys, and girls are our future partners in commerce and development, and they need humane commitments from the private sector to unlock their potential for growth. Together, we can build a prosperous global community that are more equitable shares in its economic resources. Some people may say this vision of a safer world is unrealistic, but my country, Sierra Leone, it's a testimony to what responsible business practice can achieve. My country suffered a terrible civil war from 1991 to 2002. An estimated 65,000 women were raped during the conflict and 50,000 people were killed. An estimated 27,000 people had one or more of their limbs amputated or were otherwise disabled during the 11-year war. The international demand for Sierra Leone's diamond fueled on the destruction. Sierra Leone was described as a failed state, a collapsed state. During the darkest moment of the conflict, we thought we would never know peace again, but we persevered. The private sector partnered with political leaders to create the Kimberley process, which helped us to regulate the diamond industry and stop the bloodshed. We put right laws in place and train political leaders to respond to them. In time, we created a world in which diamond mined from Sierra Leone during that time was not seen as a status symbol, but as a fuel for a bloody war that cost thousands of people their lives, the blood diamonds. Just a few months ago, I was in Sierra Leone with the United Nations Secretary General when he went to close the peace-building mission in Sierra Leone after 15 years of UN presence. Sierra Leone currently has one of the fastest-growing economies in West Africa, and it is becoming a center for foreign investment and trade. The political system has stabilized, and we have had several successful elections since the war ended in 2002. The Kimberley process demanded the courage of political leaders and the international community and the solidarity of the private sector. It is a testament to what conscious consumers and ethical corporations can achieve. We have explored the connection between conflict minerals, sexual violence, and the role corporations can play in ending rape in war. Consumers like yourself are the final spoke in the wheel. We may feel far away 
from these places where rape and conflict have taken place. We may feel we lack the power to stop sexual violence when it appears outside our own borders. We may grow complacent or cynical in the face of these atrocities because we feel our actions do not matter. But the truth is, in every single person in this room has the power to help protect innocent people from suffering. The international community, civil society, corporations and consumers must work together to protect the most vulnerable among us. Protection, therefore, is our collective responsibility. We can tell our lawmakers, the parliamentarians in the House of Commons, that we support legislation requiring public reporting of conflict minerals. Our purchasing decisions have far-reaching effects on the safety and security of those living in conflict-striking areas. And we can tell companies they have a responsibility to eliminate conflict minerals. When we choose to buy products from companies with a credible commitment to human rights, these purchasing decisions are small but important steps towards a more stable, secured global future. If there is an hungry market for these conflict minerals, this terrible sexual violence will continue. If consumers and corporations tolerate conflict minerals in supply chains, armed groups will continue attacking innocent people to gain access to these minerals. We need ethical corporate citizens and humane consumers to help us end raping war. The road ahead of us is long and hard. And the solutions before us require great political courage and commitment. But if we work together, eliminating conflict minerals and sexual violence from our supply chain is within our gaps. I thank you for your commitment and your partnership as we fight to end raping war. I thank you very much. Everybody's is still absorbing. <laughs> yes, please. I, I'll, yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Danny D. Uh, thank you for your presentation. Um, it's quite really uh, very um, depressing. Um, a very. Um, um, but one thing I want to say. There is a moral crisis, I think, uh, this rape business. I mean, how can someone enjoy sex in a violent situation? I don't understand this. Um, does the United Nations have any views on moral crisis or, or, or the source of this is, is really is a, is a degrading? It's not only the, the person who is raped. And the people who rape also really create an image of that nation, a degradation. When I saw the Sierra Leone cutting limbs, and I was very, very young, and I couldn't understand until 20 years later, and I don't get it. I mean, um, well, 
my question is, what do you do with African governments? For example, these palace bandits who are sitting there and perpetrating these, the, instead of protecting their citizen. Um, what can we do about these states? Uh, these are states supposed to provide a protection. Um, private individual cannot do anything, really, it's a state. So what does the United Nations have at its armory uh, other than setting a standard which is aspirational, sometimes rhetorical? Is there is a practical thing that United Nations can do? Uh, that's what I wanted to know from you. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. I don't think you have one solution or one action that has to do with countries. I can take it on two sides. I give you two specific examples. Let's take the, the case of Somalia. I think it was last year a woman was raped, and she said that she was raped by a of police officer in a IDP camp in Mogadishu. She was arrested. Her husband who supported her to make the allegation was arrested. The human rights officer who was investigating the case was arrested. The journalist who reported it was arrested. And the social worker who was providing support to the woman was arrested. So when we have about, about the issue, we actually work with the British government, with the United States, and the president was making a visit. He, was, he went to the United States, he came to London, and he went to the European Union. And we had to talk to each of the governments. So when he went to the White House, he met Hillary before he met President Obama and they raised the issue of the woman. He thought, oh no, the judiciary is independent in Somalia. I cannot intervene. The woman, so he thought. He came to Downing Street and the first thing the foreign secretary said to him and the prime minister said to him, what's happened to this woman? When are you going to release her? So he realized he was in trouble. And then when he went to the European Union, he was confronted with the same thing. So he had to release the woman, her husband and the journalist. And I think the, one of the biggest assets that the UN has is a convening power that it has a relationship to engage everybody. So our job more is advocacy, talking to governments, using them, not only the UN, but using other governments to work with us, which is the reason why we're very happy with this conference we're having here. Because this is the first time governments, NGOs, victims, military people, donors are sitting together around the table to look at what each one of us can do. We all work on the issue, but we work differently. I mean, the challenge you have is how an NGO who documents, who receives a woman victim that has been sexually abused, that has the evidence, because for sexual um, abuse, you, rape, you have to see a medical person within 72 hours after the rape. If not, the evidence will be lost. So the person goes to an NGO who provides medical services, and then the government or somebody wants to prosecute. The NGO said, no, it's against my ethical or to give that evidence out because I need to protect the victim. So if we don't sit around the table and understand that we have to work together, it doesn't. So, I mean, now that the issue is out, we're all working together. So government, the UN's job is to bring everybody, to work with everybody, to support everybody, and to raise the alarm. The second example I want to give is in the case of Nigeria, when this girls happen. The government, I'm sure most of you will realize, was very reluctant to actually own up and to take action. The Secretary General had to call the President and said, listen, this is 
it's a difficult problem that you alone cannot solve. I think it's extremely important for everybody to help you. So you need to accept the help. He was the first person who made a press release to condemn the act. He spoke to the to the to the president of Nigeria himself. He sent a senior staff, one of our colleagues who is in the office in the head in the West Africa office, to go and engage. And he got all the UN together. So everybody, Nigeria now has realized this is a problem bigger than them. And just we, I had on BBC when I woke up this morning, six other women have been kidnapped. And before those girls were kidnapped, over 2,000 to 3,000 women and girls had been kidnapped the last two to three years. But nobody heard about it. Because the government has been very reluctant to own up to it. And I think that's one of the challenges. So that's why we work with government. We have the team of experts to get them to accept that this is your responsibility. You have the moral, legal responsibility to protect your citizen. It's your inability to protect the citizen that leads to this issue. So that's much we can do because the UN is a member state organization. Everybody has one vote in the United Nations. But I think we're coming together, and I said this is the reason. Now today, as I'm speaking to you, we have 159 countries who have signed the declaration that has been prepared by the Foreign Secretary, which means they now agree that we're going to commit to working on sexual violence, to identify the perpetrator, to try them, to provide services for victims, to protect NGOs who are in the front line of this issue. So definitely we're working, but it's not very easy. You, you agree with you. In a country like CAR, where the president only lives in Bangui, even in Bangui he doesn't control because you have the, the anti-Balaka and the ex-Seleka fight themselves and kill whoever they want on the exception of the president. What can that president do? Because she's not in control. She doesn't have a police force. She doesn't have a military. And she has rebel running all right across the country. That's why we've, we have a peacekeeping mission going in now, trying to be able to help them build one of, create one of the biggest peace, so actually stabilize and at the end of the day, they don't have a court. They don't have police. So how do you investigate? How do you try people? So some countries are very difficult. So we deal with countries as they are because each conflict is different. Each conflict is unique. And so you deal with it as it is. So when we go, we identify what are the problems, what are the challenges, and we know what are the solutions to prescribe. Okay, thank you. Nikki. I think I'll take two or three yes. Perfect. But thank you very much for your, for your talk. I'm Nikki Lacey here, here from LSE. Um, I had a, a couple of quick questions. The, the first was you, you described you know, so eloquently the way in which conflict uh, accentuates the environment that produces rape and other forms of sexual violence. Yet many of the, the points that you made seem to be equally applicable to much more broadly situations, particularly where there is sort of inadequate pacification or rule of law or whatever. So I just wondered if you might be able to say a little bit more about how the UN tries to coordinate its, its strategies for its, its sort of conflict situation-specific strategies with the, with the broader questions about, as we know, prevalence of, of sexual violence, um, particularly given this very, very interesting theme that you had about the role of sexual violence in effectively you know, profit-seeking and, and the, the, the competition for resources. And the other thing I wondered about was, was this, this incredibly difficult question about the, the, the cultural context in which sexual violence uh, not only arises but is, is received and the sorts of harms that it causes. And you, you emphasize the sort of commonality 
of the experience of degradation and humiliation, and I, uh, I completely respect that. On the other hand, we also know that the degree of harm and pain that sexual violence causes, that there may be a, a kernel of commonality, but the, that, that kernel can be really aggravated by norms about masculinity, you know, which would be true in this country, norms about honour, and how do we begin to think is there anything that, that organisations like the UN can do around those sorts of questions? You know, it's, one, it's one thing and a terrible thing to be raped. It's another thing to then be cast out or subject to further violence. Can we take a second question up mm -hmm. there and just gather a few? Mm -hmm. Hello, Ms. Bangura. Uh, thank you. I'm from Sierra Leone as well, and I'm quite uh, familiar with uh, sexual violence uh, during our conflict. Um, for today, what I would like to know is uh, to what extent can corporations actually be held accountable uh, through CSR for the protection of women in, in conflict areas? And secondly, should uh, their participation be obligatory or voluntary? Pardon? Uh, should the participation of... Uh, Corporations be voluntary or obligatory, sorry. Thank you. Any others? Okay. Do you want to go up there? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> we'll come back to you. Very quick one. Thank you. It's so interesting to be listening to looking at sexual violence in the context of corporate social responsibility. And I've just been at the summit today. And I just wanted to ask two very quick questions. Maybe I didn't hear well or came in late. There is that US law that, and, uh, which says that you have to actually identify and actually put sanctions. And I wanted to know briefly how many prosecutions there have actually been, successful prosecutions of big companies which would probably include multinational companies because there is this law but we also know that in, as you said, that whole sort of trajectory of exporting the minerals, there's just so many ways in which that law is breached. That's one question. And then the second question, because I've been, I'm an NGO fringe, uh, person, and we had a trial of 1325, UN Security Council Resolution 1325 today, and one of the things that comes out there and wherever we're talking is the lack of funding for women's NGOs at the grassroots level to be able to access everything they need, including specialist training, to deal with all these terrible, terrible crimes and actually document them quickly. And nobody has any money. UN Women doesn't have any money. Nobody. But the corporate, but the big corporations do have money. We're always talking about how we need small sums of money to go to all those people who are really working at the ground. So the end of the mock trial of 1325 was that we all put our hands up and said, no, it hasn't been effective, and it hasn't been effective because the women's organizations on the ground are absolutely desperate for funding so they can access all sorts of things, including training. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'll take those two questions. I hope I got all of them correct. I think I start with you, Margaret. I do agree with you that there is a lack of funding. 
And I think having come from a conflict country myself, during the conflict you have a huge amount of resources, um, humanitarian and all sorts of activity. And once the conflict and the attention is taken away, and sometimes you have a lot of challenges. We had that in Sierra Leone, but I think now the worst case we have is because of the economic meltdown, the reality is everybody's cutting down. I mean, we have to accept that all of the countries, the, the donors, the main donors do not have the resources to fund. Today, we have more conflicts than we've ever had. And I think everybody is overstretched. I mean, as a senior officer in the UN, where we sit once or twice a week to talk about the countries, I mean, you talk about Mali, you talk about South Sudan, you talk about Syria, you talk about Ukraine, you know, you talk about Libya, you talk about Iraq. So you, you find out you spend more time trying to analyze how to deal with this conflict, and they are all different. The challenge is each of the conflicts is different, is unique. And that's the biggest challenge we have. When we set up the UN mission in Sudan, we looked on nation building. We looked to supporting the government on economic growth. So the staff and everybody we had there was helping the government to reestablish itself. All of a sudden, hell broke loose in South Sudan in December last year. We found ourselves with over 60 or 70,000 or nearly 100,000 refugees in our offices, our buildings. Why? We had to open the door because, because it became an ethnic conflict with the Dimka and the Noah. So the Dimka are in Juba. They are running after the Noah. Every Noah they see, they will kill the Noah. We had to put them in to protect them because we reminded ourselves of what happened in Rwanda. So we had to bring them. In Boa, we had to put the Dimka there because they were at the mercy of the Noah. The Noah were killing them. Here we are stuck with these people in offices where we had very few. These are offices walking and talking. And you have to find food. You have to have sanitation and everything. So now when we went back to the Security Council, we realized we have to rechange the mandates because we are going to, to work more on human rights violation. We're going to work more on protection of civilian. We're going to work more on humanitarian access for these people because now we're anticipating there's going to be a, a crisis in terms of food because we've missed the farming season. So millions of Sudanese are going to be without food. So God knows what is going to happen next year. Will be, if we're not be careful, there will be massive starvation. And I think that's the challenge we face. You know, reinventing, rechanging, because crisis change. It's the same thing in the CR. As I said to you, we're looking at it. We had a political office there, which was trying to mediate. There was a peace agreement, and all of a sudden there was a coup. The next thing that happened within a couple of weeks and months, it became an ethnic, a religious war, with the Muslims killing the Christians and the Christians killing the Muslims. Now we have a peace, to put a peacekeeping mission. And so the peacekeeping mission now has to be able to make sure how do you build the rule of law. There's no court system in the CR, Central African Republic. So I think those challenges create enormous problems for us. And the resources are not there because, hey, when the conflict in Syria ends, it's going to be one of the biggest crises we're going to have in the world to deal with that. Because that country has to be rebuilt from the scratch. Nobody knows how much it's going to cost. We're pretending we're not thinking about it, but once it happens, 
I tell you where you have over 50% of the population out, we have to take them back. You know, people traumatized, devastated, children sold into slavery, traffic and everything. So nobody's thinking about the problem. That's the challenge with the resources. And so what my colleague Plumzile has done, she's very smart. She set up an advisory board to bring the BRIC Corporation, Coca-Cola, all of them, Anglo, uh, American, Gold, and everybody. She said, and she's saying to them, I have to get the money from you. She just launched the advisory board. She brought some of the biggest corporations around the world to put their money where their mouth is. So we, I'm saying this because we have to be creative. We have to think out of the box. So we are thinking, now where is, and that's where the money is, and this is the reason why we're talking all this, we're talking about conflict, mineral. We want to hold them accountable. We want them to understand. This is the reason why we talk to a university like you. There is now a whole movement of students who are ringing the bell at the doors of these corporate people and say, hey, you are causing this. You have to pay for it. We need money to you to do this. So it's a new way of thinking. And I think we have to think because the reason why, because there's no more resources within government. And I think that's because the biggest challenge. The successful prosecution, you know, as I said, it's like when, we, when my mandate was created, we knew sexual violence was taking place. As we open up, we start, as we monitor, we're having more information. Like we said, men, when they were sexually abused, they call it torture. They never own up that they were sexually abused. You can hear men have been tortured in prison. When we started investigating, we find out most of it was sexual violence. We are being raped in prison cells. We found out that refugees and IDP camps are so vulnerable for women because the perpetrators live in the scam. They know where the women are. They know a tent which has a woman and a daughter. They go there at 2 a.m. in the morning. They rape the woman in the IDP in the refugee camp because they are not protected. They have this cloth in front of the door. And so he goes in, he puts a gunpoint, and he rapes her. The way the refugee camps and IDP are built, they put all the toilet facility 200 years at the back. This woman in the middle of the night where she feels she wants to go to the loo, she goes there, there's somebody behind the door waiting for them, and they rape them. As we list, we look, we research, we are finding more and more deeper it is that this problem is much bigger than we normally thought. And that's how we came with the issue of, of conflict minerals, the relationship between extractive minerals and sexual violence were seen as more men, were seen about children who have been raped. Nobody ever thought about them. In Bosnia, they are teenagers. But when this thing started, so it's the same thing with the issue of the cooperation. I think we're getting, you have people who are doing more research. They are coming to understand the problem, the implication. That will give you an opportunity to hold the companies accountable. So if they are not being at least for what's the important issue that the law is there, we can use the law when we get enough evidence. But how do you hold a company who is sitting here and is buying? Like I said, there's so much disconnection. The supply chain is so long that by the time the diamond comes or the gold or whatever into the company in here, it's been smelted. You don't know where it is from. You cannot tell a DRC gold when you buy a ring. 
It's difficult for you to know. And so those are some of the challenges we face and we have to do. In terms of the question from my country, I think you said from Sierra Leone, the voluntary. The U.S. is not voluntary, it's compulsory. And that's what it is. It's the European Union that is voluntary. And because you have this interconnection between companies, most of the companies in America have connections, shareholding. So directly and indirectly, it links companies in Europe. And so that's what we have to work with. It's voluntary in Europe. But in, U, in the U.S. it's not. So if a company in the U.S. has a link to a company here, it means the company here is also accountable. So obviously, we're building it. We're great. It's voluntary. We want you to appreciate it and come in. And then we ask you more questions. You know, you have to allow the camel to put his head in before you have to ask him where he comes from. But if they're not in part, you can't hold them accountable. I think that's very important. I agree with you on the issue of masculinity. You know, if you don't respect your women in peacetime, you will never protect them in conflict. In countries that have suffered sexual violence, this is why one of the things we try to do is to get the law. Because in the law, we build other things in. And I tell you, in Sierra Leone, I come from a community where women cannot be, women are part of the husband's property. When the husband dies, you're distributed as the rest of his property. The community or the family decides who inherits you next. But because we've been able to have these issues dealt with, we have Sex Offenders Act, we have Inheritance Law, because, you know, the law, as I said, in our Constitution, it says that we're equal before the law. The same Constitution says that we must respect cultural and religious law. And you know cultural and religious law, that is where we suffer. So at one part it said we are equal before the law, and another section it says that you have to expect cultural. And it says that if you're Muslim, you are subjected to the Islamic law. If you're not a Muslim, you come from my village where I come, you're subjected to the cultural law. So after the war, we had to have gender laws on inheritance, you know, on child rights, on everything. So the effect of the war has a way. So we look at ourselves and say, we open the door for the bigger issue. Because this is why we belong to a network, the UN Action Against Sexual Violence. Once we go in, we bring the peacekeepers, we bring the human rights, we bring the lawyers, we bring the, the service providers, we bring everybody along with us. And each person has their own responsibility. So it's multidimensional. I alone cannot solve the problem because I can talk as much as I can but excuse me, when a woman is, is sexually abused, the first thing she wants is the hospital door. I don't provide medical services. She wants to have trauma counseling. I don't provide it. She wants to have a legal right. I don't provide it. But I work with all of them with me. So once I go, and what I've started doing in the UN is that I try to travel with my colleagues. You know, I went to the DRC with the head of UNFPA. I was supposed to go to Somalia before they bombed Nairobi with Valerie Amos and others. So I work with all of my colleagues who are in the UN action for them to see the picture and to see themselves where they belong within that um, um, support that the woman needs. So obviously, I agree with you. All of this we have to do until you're able to empower women, you're able to educate them, you will not be able to, fight, to get them to defend themselves and protect themselves, and they can't make independent decisions, whether economic or social, if they don't have the right education. So obviously, we work together. And I, I think, um, like I said, I've spoken about the issue of Sudan and the CIA rescue. Each conflict is different, and that's what we try to do in the UN. It's not very easy, 
because understanding, which is the reason why when I visit a country for the first time, I always try to do it for minimum 10 days because I, I visit the field, I talk to victims, I talk to NGOs, I do all of that round before I even engage the government because I don't want somebody to tell, you're coming to my country, you're coming to accuse me of sexual violence, what do you know? Having been an NGO person on the ground, I know that the NGOs are very critical to me getting the knowledge. And I want to feel how the victims feel. I want to understand it. So when I sit in front of the government, I tell them this is what is happening in your country. This is where I went. This is what I saw. And this is what I want to do. So at the end of the day, he cannot defend themselves. And I think it's extremely important so by that way, I've been able to engage governments. And I actually have to say, I've got success, successful response from them because they understand that you're talking to somebody who knows the problem, who has gone through it, seen it in my own country, cried with victims, supported them, helped them, and dealt with it. So I'm not somebody coming from some out of space who really doesn't understand what is happening. Okay, let's take some more questions. Then I'll abuse my chair position. <laughs> there was a question at the back there. Was there a question down here? Mm -hmm. um, my question is to do with the fact that you've talked a lot about carrots Buddy? in terms of um, carrots that you've sort of put out for um, big MNCs, they're kind of encouraging them to work better and more ethically because they don't want to have. Uh, bad publicity, but I want to know maybe more about the kind of the sticks side of thing and the idea of you know actually holding these companies to account whether the UN or other bodies can do more. I know that you said it's very difficult because they do work very well to distance themselves from the ground and often people will say, oh well we outsource etc etc. But I think that maybe they're just, it's time that these companies, you know, face either huge um, fines or imprisonment of the people working within them because they know exactly what is happening on the ground and too many of these big companies are getting away with it day after day. Right there, sorry. Can you just pass it ahead of you? I'm sorry. Thank you. Ben. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it's just a really simple question to ask about the summit and what representation is there of the corporate sector in the summit and what discussions are there going to be around the, this very important topic that you've been talking about tonight? Hi, I have a question about the silence of the victims of sexual violence. Uh, for instance, I am coming from Turkey and I have been uh, as a journalist to various parts of Turkey that the civil war between Kurds and the Turkish military went on for 30 years. And these women, uh, it was very difficult for them to share their experiences and they didn't uh, report these incidents. They were talking with me, for instance, as a woman, but they, did, they refused to go to the courts. So what is your suggestion? How do you deal with this silence? Okay. Um, let's have a question down here. And I'll take two more if people can keep them. Hi. Um, I was working over in Latin America and you mentioned something about um, Western Union. 
And one of the similarities there is that the financial institutions and organisations like Western Union obviously have a bit of a data trail on the transactions that happen. And I wondered what's happening um, with the UN working with organisations like that as well as the companies that are purchasing the minerals to, to trace um, what's exactly happening there. Okay. One more there. Hello, my name is Binta, fellow Sierra Leonean as well. Um, I was curious as to um, the role of female combatants. Pardon? Uh, female combatants in war, as far as their role in conflict and perpetrators of sexual violence, if you could maybe speak more to that. Ab to, about? Their um, role in conflict as well as perpetrators of sexual violence. Oh, their role as perpetrators? Yes. Just right there. Mm -hmm. And then there, and then I'll stop, sorry, otherwise you'll have too much. Um, so my question would be, if I were to go home, and if you, what would you say I should go home, and if there's one thing I should do tonight to support this, what should I go home and do? Just I know there's more than one thing that has to be done. I think so. Just one more, and then I'll mm -hmm. stop. Yeah, just over there, please. Thank you. Thank you. Mine is just a very general one. You mentioned that today we have more conflicts uh, of unique nature than ever. And this probably means that we have more sexual violence incidences happening and probably of unique nature and gravier nature as well. I just want to ask, uh, where have we gone wrong in all these years? <coughs> what has you and what hasn't you and done? What haven't you done that is causing all these problems? Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> You've got a big task on your hands now. <laughs> Okay, let me start from the last question as always. <laughs> what have we done wrong? I don't think I have an answer. Because, you know, every situation is different. We look at what's happened. It's a governance problem in Ukraine, you know. And I think each of the countries is different. The causes of the conflict are different. I can tell you about my conflicts in Sierra Leone. It was bad government, it was mismanagement, it was corruption, it was political marginalization of one particular side. So each, each, each one is different. This is the reason why we're trying to say that um, we have to look at the root causes of the conflict. And I think the Secretary General, when we had the SRSG's retreat this year in Geneva, He's a very passionate person, you know. He feels sometimes so distressed with some of the things that are happening. And he said that we have to spend more money on preventive diplomacy to try to deal with this issue before it escalates. You know, but these are member states. They, they, the UN, for us, we're secretariats. We do what the member states ask us to do. We cannot, on our own, come into the UK and start imposing conditions. Everybody will scream, what do you want to come? You want to become the policeman of the world? So that's the challenge. The UN goes in when it's a crisis and try to help deal with the crisis. And I think that's the biggest challenge. And so even the Secretary General, who sometimes, I have seen him, for example, when Goma fell, he was so, so upset, which is the reason why we have now the intervention force, because he realized that we need to be more robust and run after these people. So he himself is saying to us, what can we do more to prevent the conflict? We're talking about it. We're talking with government who have pressure on other governments to be able to influence them. So the world is becoming more complex. 
we are closer because we hear problems other places. But what can you do? You can't just walk into a country that have demonstration challenges. Let's say what was happening in Egypt. Who can just go into Egypt and say that we're going to take your country over and fight? It's, I mean, that's the biggest challenge we face. Until you get to a situation where we know hell broke loose, then the UN, and as you know, the UN just doesn't go. There has to be a security council resolution which instructs the UN to go into a country. So the UN by itself cannot intervene in any situation until the member states among themselves give the mandate to, the, to us, the secretariat, to say, this is what we want you to do. So they go to the Security Council, they discuss this, they take a decision or resolution. Our job is to implement that resolution. So it's very challenging, but unfortunately that's how the world, the world works. The role of women as perpetrators, I think that's, yes, women, resolution 1325 says that women, conflict affects women more because they are women. Basically, that's what, because they are women, they suffer more in conflict, you know, as victims of sexual violence, all sorts of ways as ex-combatants. The way we suffer because we're women is different way men suffer. And I think that's one of the things that Resolution 1325 did. And so it imposes on government to take special measures to be able, yes, we have, but my dear, when you look at the perpetrators, 90 or more percent of them are women. Look at all the people who have gone before the ICC who have been accused of sexual violence. You only have one woman, I think, from Rwanda, where she commanded and controlled, but she didn't perpetrate the sexual violence. So, yes, women are more of victims, and I think that's the biggest challenge because we are vulnerable. You know, because society sometimes treats us as second-class citizens. And once you treat us as second-class citizens, you don't value us, and you don't... Uh, uh, um, protect us during peacetime, uh, uh, you don't respect us during peacetime, you cannot protect us this in war. So we suffer more than men. Yes, we, we do cause problems, but I tell you, in my experience in Sierra Leone, when girls are abducted, apart from the fact that they are raped, they are the ones who cook for those people, they are the ones who carry the load, and sometimes when they fall short of people to fight, they give the arms to the girls to join them in fighting. So our role, and then when you come to demobilization, even though we have been trained to fight and we actually do active, we are not demobilized. So who benefits from demobilization of foreign training are the men. So we lose. So there are a whole lot of challenges which women do. So women are more victims than perpetrators. The, the question on... Telling the flow of money, I tell you, every day I sleep, I wake, I have new problems, and I, I've told my staff, let's solve the ones we can. Last year and this year, we reported about 22 countries, Afghanistan, Nepal, you call it. I have only 12 priority countries where I can visit, where I can engage the government. So it's a big problem. We're dealing with it one after the other. The most important to identify as a problem here, if we can have somebody to work with us, they do it. For example, in the issue of uh, conflict minerals, we have enough projects who are doing a lot of work. We're having Harvard University doing a lot of research on it. So we get the information, we use it as an advocacy tool. But you know, we can't do everything because this is such a big, and this is why we really appreciate the British government involvement. Now we have the Japanese, they're, they're coming in a very big way. You know, and they want to become Margaret, the biggest donor to UN women. 
they're putting together three billion dollars within the next five years to support women empowerment around the world so that's much we can just do what we can swallow you know if you chew everything you choke so we have to do it little by little and to be able to do the job the silence there's a culture of silence in the issue of rape because of the pain, the stigma associated with it. Women will never come out to say they have been raped. This is reason, one of the reasons we're trying to do in the UN is to get more women in the police force. Now you have a, a whole, we call them form police units, 100% women who go into peacekeeping. India and Bangladesh, they are producing them. And this is the reason why we're encouraging in police stations, in conflict, that's in countries that have a lot of sexual violence, we have what we call family support unit, gender-based units in police stations who are women trained so that if a woman goes to a report, she goes to that little corner, she meets a woman police officer who has been trained. You know what? Because in some places we found women go to a police station, they are raped. Because when they go to report to a policeman, he says, oh, there must be something why that man rapes you. And when you make the complaint, he rapes you. We've seen that. So women find it, oh, they stigmatize it, they talk about it, they make you a laughing stock among your colleagues, and they see that that's why you have been raped. This is the reason. So all of our thinking, as I said, new strategies, how we work. So when we go into countries like we did in Sierra Leone, we had family support unit. So every police station you go to Sierra Leone, you have a family support unit. You have a gender-based unit in Rwanda. You have a one-stop shop where a woman can walk in. She has access to a police station. She has access to a medical facility. She has access for trauma counseling. So once she comes out, she'll be able to have all those services. So these are some of, there is too much stigma on it. And I think it's a huge problem. So hundreds and millions of women live behind the shadows. We don't see them. So part of my job is to bring out their voices, to be able to put a face to a story, to a crime, so that the international community and the world can understand it, to be able to know that. And these women later listen to us. We give, also give them hope that people are fighting for you. People hear your stories. And so everywhere I go when I talk to victims, as I said, I normally meet them first. I said to them, what do you want me to tell your government if there is one thing? Which brings me to the lady who said, what do you want to go home with? This is a crime, and we have to fight it. You know, when our colleague, um, um, how do you, um, Plumzili, the head of UN Women, joined us, we have this... Thing we have in the UN because the Secretary General is so gender sensitive. He's appointed more under Secretary General than any Secretary General in the United Nations. So we have a lot of women. I think we're about almost 40% now senior leadership in the UN who are women. So we had to welcome her and we said to her, if there's anything in this world that women have to fight is we suffer more than everybody whether it's domestic violence, it's violence against women. Whether you're a doctor, whether you're a politician, whether you're a student, whether you're a UN staff like ourselves, it affects you in the home. Girls are sexually abused by their teachers, and the victims are becoming younger and younger. Something is wrong in our societies. Last week, I had a, a panel discussion in which I was asked to participate. It was organized by the Mission of Rwanda and the Australian Ambassador at the UN. 
I was sitting next to the Rwanda ambassador, a lady from Norway, a police officer, a UN female police officer from Norway who worked uh, in Haiti, was giving a presentation. She spoke about an 11-month-old baby who had been raped by her father. The mother was in the home. She could not fight it. It had to take the aunt who realizes to report it to the police station. So Eugene, who is the ambassador for Rwanda, said to me, I cannot believe how a man can rape his 11-year-old baby. I said, Eugene, it's 11 months. He said, what? I said, no, men are crazy. I said, Eugene, I have a three-month-old victim in Liberia. I met a six-month-old babies in the DRC. Save the Children produced a report last year to say 50%, half of the victims of sexual violence are children. In Liberia, 70% are under the age of 18. Last year, 10 babies died in Liberia because they were sexually abused. And Eugene said, oh my God, I hate men. He was so shocked he couldn't believe. He's the ambassador. So we finished the, the panel. And I walked out, and then this South African lady came to me. And he said, because I spoke about it, and I explained the exchange with Eugene to the crowd. So this South African lady came to me. She said, I appreciate your work. You're doing the wonderful work. And I had the example you gave. She said, but I want to tell you, I dealt with a rape victim who was six weeks old in South Africa. That's the problem we have. And that's why we want you to join us. It's a big problem, but it takes all of us to raise our voice that it's enough. Enough is enough. And that whoever commits this crime, wherever they are, whoever they are, we must go after them and we must get them. Because prosecution itself is deterrent. We must raise the cost for sexual violence so that everybody knows you pay the ultimate price. You will not go unpunished when you commit it, wherever you are. And I think that's the message and determination I want you to take home. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Sainab. I know you have another appointment. Um, now, I just, um, on that sobering note, I'm, I'm sorry to end on that sobering note, but um, I want to um, thank... Uh, Zainab for sharing with us so many of her experiences both working for the UN and um, in her previous positions and uh, I want to thank the audience for participating and asking uh, important questions about the ways in which the UN should and can possibly address sexual violence and conflict and I hope you will join me in thanking Zainab for her thoughts today.